Bible and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5. A vision of a woman in a basket. Now, if this is your first time visiting with us or your first exposure to Christianity, please stay to the end of the sermon. I will attempt to explain what's going on here. Just didn't want anybody running out prematurely thinking weird thoughts about how we view women or something. So verse 5 of Zechariah 5, hear the word of the Lord. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Father, I pray that you would use your word to open our eyes to the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And though this vision, this, these, these images, these symbols seem confusing on the surface. Your message is clear to us. You've not inspired your word to confuse us, but to lead us in the way of repentance and the way of life. And so I pray that you would grant that life in our time together over your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have to admit, this vision is rather bizarre. If you had a cartoon contest between these eight visions we've been going over in Zechariah, this one definitely takes first prize in the category of strange. But strange as it is, the overall meaning is pretty straightforward. Uh, Even if we can't discern all of the symbols uh, fully, it's clear that God is removing evil from the land. God is removing evil from the land. From the land. That's the point. He's getting wickedness away from his dwelling place and away from his people altogether. All right, we'll now move to application. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's think through some of these details a bit further and let's search our Bibles and see what these various symbols represent and, and why they're coming together the way they are. Here And I want to do this by answering three big questions. What's, what's the basket about? What's inside the basket? And where's it going? What's the basket about? What's inside the basket? And where's it going? So question number one, what's the basket about? Zechariah, in verse 6, he, he sees a basket going out, and then the angel identifies the basket as... Their iniquity in all the land. Iniquity is another word for sin and and usually the guilt that goes along with it. This is what this basket's about. But note a few things here. The basket that's in mind is what's referred to elsewhere in the Old Testament as an ephah. An ephah. An ephah was a basket normally used as a measuring device. It it held just a bit more than than our five-gallon bucket would hold. And the people would use it to measure out flour 
and other grains usually for one of two purposes, either uh, trade or worship. Trade or worship. You measured out flour for others in trade, and they get the flour, you get the money. And you sometimes measured out flour for various sin offerings in worship. Which is why the Lord was so adamant that his people not cheat him in worship or cheat their neighbor in trade with an unjust ephah. If your ephah was unjust, then it, you, know, you made it smaller than what it was supposed to be. Uh, so even though it looked full to the buyer and it looked full to the priest... The Lord knew it was unjust, that it was a lie. It had less than what it was supposed to have in it for trade and for worship. If your ephah was unjust, Proverbs 20 says, you were an abomination to the Lord. In fact, just before the Lord sent Israel into exile, both Amos and Micah blast Israel for using unjust ephahs in their trade because it exposed their allegiance to money and to their possessions rather than to the Lord. They trampled, uh, Amos 8.5 says, they trampled on the needy and they brought the poor to an end by making the ephah small. Then he goes on to say that the Lord promised to punish the land for it. And he did this, he did, he did punish them by sending them into a horrific exile. But here the exile is over. The Lord has brought back his people and now he's holding before the people a vision of an ephah, basically saying, remember what you use this for? Remember the way this was used against each other and against me? This is your iniquity in the land. In other words, their iniquity, it's in all the land, and it affected every part of their life from their trade to their worship. From the way they treated their neighbor during the week to the way they pretended to worship God on the weekends. Their sin and the resulting guilt was as common to their daily lives as the ephah. So can you imagine returning from 70 years in exile, 70 years under the worst weight of what your sin caused, 70 years in oppression, 70 years of forsakenness, 70 years of desolation, all because of your sin, and then you return home to have your Lord hold your sin out in front of you once again, or at least a symbol of it. This is your iniquity. It'd be like having all your sins scrolling down this screen behind me, one by one, with all of the hurt they caused others and with all of the grief they caused God. And it gets even worse because now God even gives it a face with what's inside the basket. That's the next big question. What's inside the basket? Verse 7 and behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So what's with this woman sitting in the bath, sitting inside this ephah? We know he's not making a statement about women, Okay. We can get that straight because the Bible elsewhere uses a woman to depict a really good thing. Like in the book of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom. Okay. Something similar could be going on here. Uh, just as the noun, wisdom, in the book of Proverbs is feminine, so also the noun, wickedness, in Zechariah is feminine. So it makes sense to use a woman to, to, to illustrate the feminine 
noun, wickedness. But I think we can say more than that. Because Zechariah has a habit of building on the imagery of the prophets who went before him. And these prophets regularly talk about idolatry using the metaphor of prostitution or the metaphor of an unfaithful woman. So, for example, in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel 16 uh, and 23 and then also Hosea chapter 2, um, you get this idea of playing the whore. Playing the whore. It was a repulsive way for the prophets to talk about Israel worshiping idols. They were, they were being unfaithful to their covenant Lord by going and worshiping idols. And there's even one woman in the Old Testament who uh, eventually becomes a code word for idolatry, and that's Jezebel. We see that in eventually coming about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. So with this background in mind, the, the, the woman in the ephah seems to represent idolatry. I might also point out that the woman here is apparently small enough to fit inside an ephah. The prophet even describes her as a woman sitting in the basket. She's, she's sitting much like a figurine might sit. Uh, she's enthroned, in other words, like a queen. Uh, Jeremiah 7, 18 speaks about the people bowing to the queen of heaven, this, this goddess Asherah. And she seems to be some kind of idol because later on in verse 11, she, gets, she even gets her own temple and a base on which to set her. So what is this face behind their iniquity in all the land? It's fundamentally idolatry and covenant unfaithfulness to God. And idolatry's name is wickedness. So this is the wickedness the Lord warned the people against uh, from the very beginning. He gets them out of Egypt and he's, he's taking them into the promised land. And over and over again he warns them about the wickedness of the nations which is their idols. But they didn't listen. And so God judged them by sending them into exile. But now the exile is over. And God holds their iniquity before them in the ephah. Even worse, he gives it a face, a woman symbolizing their idolatry and their covenant unfaithfulness. And her name is wickedness. And every single one of them in the room is saying, that is my face, wickedness. This is what underlies my guilt, idolatry. The exchange of God's glory for what he created God holds it out before them, but get this, it's not to throw it in their face. It's to show them what he's about to do to it. And the angel shoves her back down into the basket, throws a lead weight on top. In other words, saying idolatry has long been a stronghold for God's people, but it's not more powerful than God. It's not wickedness's hold on the people. It's not more powerful than God. God puts wickedness in its place. Oh, he gives them a good look at her, but he does so so that they can wave goodbye as he sends it out. And that leads us to answer one last question. Where's the basket going? The answer comes in verses 9 to 11. Let's walk through it. He says, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So stop there. Obviously, these are no ordinary women. There's some kind of heavenly agents. The wind was in their wings. That's used 
in 2 Samuel and Psalm 18 and Psalm 104 to, to describe heavenly agents. They've got wings like the wings of a stork. Elsewhere in Scripture, heavenly agents, they have a mixture of human and animal-like features. We see this in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4. But the focus lies not so much on what these two are, but on where they're going. They, they lift the ephah between earth and heaven in order to carry it somewhere. Let's see where they're taking it. Verse 10, Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Literally, she will be set down there on her base. So they're taking the woman to the land of Shinar. And this is the north land, Babylon. This is where the stork would migrate. Well, they got stork wings. The north land in, in Babylon. The, this land of Shinar. It first appears in uh, Genesis 10, verse 10 of Genesis 10, uh, where Nimrod starts... Building his kingdom. It's a really funny name, Nimrod. Uh, but Nimrod starts building his kingdom, part of which eventually becomes Babel or Babylon. Same word in, in, in Hebrew. And then in Genesis 11:2, we get the, the land of Shinar again. But this time in Genesis 11, it shows us where Babel got its name. And you may remember the story. Instead of living... To make a name for God, the people all form an alliance to build this gigantic tower to heaven. Why? To make a name for themselves. They want to be famous. They don't want God to be famous. They want themselves to be famous. But God comes down, confuses their language, and therefore the city becomes known as Babel or Babylon. So from that point on in Scripture, the land of Shinar symbolizes organized rebellion against God. organized rebellion against God. And that's precisely the way Babylon is portrayed as well throughout the, 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 the Scriptures. It's just that Babylon is the capital city of the land of Shinar. It's the capital city of rebellion against God. So this land of Shinar or, or Babylon is a code word for organized rebellion against God. Why are these stork-like women carrying the basket then to Shinar? Because they're putting wickedness where it belongs. Uh, if you look back with me, glance over to chapter 2, verse 12, and you may remember us talking about this. It says in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, this is after the Lord has, has talked about returning to the city and building His, his temple and it says, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. And we talked about that um, the only other place in Scripture where we see this, this holy land, the, the, literally it's the holy ground, is where Moses is asked to take his sandals off his feet by the bush where God was present. And so we talked about when God is present in his city, he, his presence in the city makes the city and its land sacred or holy because he is there. So what's going on here is that God's come in to make his land holy. And when the Lord's glory presence fills the land, the land itself becomes holy, and that means wickedness does not have a home in his land. It doesn't have a home in his city, and so he sends it to where she belongs. So these heavenly creatures take the ephah with the idol named wickedness to the land of Shinar, that 
place of rebellion against God, and they build and they basically build a temple for. Yeah, that's what's meant by building a house for her. A house means a, a temple, uh, and and the and the woman even gets a base. It's a stand of some sort on which to set a religious object. So it's this this base is used elsewhere in Scripture. But let's note this right now. Because this vision, I mean, it kind of stops there. It kind of leaves this question mark. Like, what in the world is it? Why do they get a, why does she get a temple? Right? I mean, so let's clarify this. Just because wickedness gets her own temple in Shinar doesn't mean she lasts forever. Okay, we'll get to this next week in the eighth vision. Remember, these visions interlock with one another. We'll get to this next week with the eighth vision. As God sends out his chariot warriors to the north, where this basket just got set. And suffice it to say for now that God puts wickedness where it belongs in order to punish it. He puts wickedness where it belongs in order to punish it. He drives wickedness from his presence for the purpose of destroying it altogether. Even if he permits the evil to last a little while longer, it's not so that it'll succeed in the end. He's in control and eventually he'll destroy it. That's what Revelation 18 is all about. You see, God eventually destroys Babylon altogether. She has her influence right now. She subtly spreads her idolatry far and wide. And the full manifestation of her evil is still yet to come. But it's nothing compared to God. God will cast her down, Revelation 18 says, like tossing a great millstone into the sea. She's going to chunk it. One of, one of his angels chunks it. Into the sea, and, her, and it says in Revelation 19 then that her smoke will rise forever and ever. So that's what's coming for wickedness. The focus of this vision, though, is what God is doing for his own elect people, the remnant, which he's already talked about in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, gathering to himself. He's gathered these people for himself, both from Jews and from the nations. He's gathered these people to himself. Chapter 3 talks about how he planned to forgive their sins. So he's got them in his city. And what's happening here is basically a reversal of what happened in Ezekiel. If you go home and read Ezekiel chapter 1 through 11... What we see there, what you see there is this, is this story of the Lord departing from his temple city. He sees the glory cloud rise up over the temple, go outside to the city, sits on the mountain in the east. The Lord departs from his temple city on a kind of throne chariot carried by some heavenly agents. And the reason the Lord leaves the temple is for the people's wickedness and their idolatry. Both of those things are mentioned. In Ezekiel 3 and chapter 8, he leaves the temple for the people's wickedness and their idolatry. But now the exile is over and the Lord gives them a new vision, a vision of him returning to his temple city. And what we get is a reversal. He returns to the temple city and when his presence fills the temple city, he forces wickedness and idolatry out, away. But here's the amazing thing. He still keeps his people. He still keeps his people. He doesn't force his people to leave with their wickedness and their idolatry. He sends the wickedness and idolatry away while keeping his people near to his presence. In other words, he doesn't just get his people out of Babylon. He just got Babylon out of his people. And he sends that wickedness away from them so that all they have to enjoy is his glory. There's no more idolatry. There's no more wickedness blocking their vision of his glory. 
And that's good news. That's the work he promises with this vision. And I will say, that's the work he has begun in all of us who know Jesus Christ. Not a single one of us is without fault when it comes to idolatry. Others have said that our hearts are like idol factories. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't need a little statue in order to count ourselves among the idolaters. We just have to be born. We were born in sin. And our hearts, when they're enslaved to sin, they're really good at turning just about anything into an idol. Anything besides God that we must have in order to be happy or find meaning in life or feel secure is an idol. Or just think of the times that you may have used people to get what you want or got angry at somebody because he got in the way of what you wanted. It's idolatry. We, we've all worn this face of wickedness. We know it well, and, des- and we deserve banishment from the presence of God. This is the pattern in Scripture. I mean, we see it in the garden when Adam and Eve sin, and he banishes them from his presence. The world eventually grows corrupt, and God banishes them with a flood. God enters the land of Canaan with Israel, and he banishes the nations and their idols as they're entering Israel refuses to let go of their idols, and so God banishes them to exile in Babylon. Jesus even comes into his father's temple as God in the flesh, and he banishes the money changers with a whip. Get out of here. And we too deserve banishment for our wickedness. But here's the amazing news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Instead of banishing us from his presence, which we deserve for our idolatry, Instead of banishing us from his presence, God found a way to bring us into his presence while banishing our sin on Christ. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, God put all our sins on Jesus and banished them to the grave forever, never to rise their head again. He was like the scapegoat in the Old Testament. All our sins were transferred to him and he was banished outside the camp under the wrath of God. All our sins were taken away as far as the east is from the west, as far as as high as the heavens are above the earth, as you read earlier. And all of his righteousness is then given to us so that we may come into the presence of God without being banished along with our sin. And you know what else that means for those who believe in Jesus? God comes to dwell in you by the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens when God takes residence in the believer? He starts cleaning house, doesn't he? He starts that work, what do we call it? Sanctification. He starts that work in us so that day by day more idolatry is driven out, more of our wickedness is driven out, more of our sin is driven out from where he has chosen to dwell. In other words, God's power to banish wickedness now works on behalf of his elect all through the cross. The same reversal we're seeing here in Zechariah is the same reversal that takes place for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And that reversal will happen for you if you trust in Jesus this morning. God will come in. He will drive sin out. You will no longer be enslaved to it. And he does that to prepare us for the day when we dwell with him in the new Jerusalem with all wickedness banished forever from his city and with all wickedness never able to enter that city again. Revelation 21, 27 says that nothing unclean will ever enter the city nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So let me leave you with a couple of ways the theology of this vision has impacted me this week. I had three. I'm only going to give you two. 
because both of our toilets got clogged yesterday. I had to drive out wickedness with an auger. So here's two, two ways the theology of this vision has impacted me this week. First of all, I was encouraged by this truth from this text. Wickedness is not more powerful than God. Wickedness is not more powerful than God. We don't live in a dualistic world, okay, where evil exists as, as God's equally powerful opponent. It is, evil is not more powerful than God or even an equal opposite to God. God is the one who's more powerful in this vision. We see that wickedness isn't just contained. He shoves it into the ephah. It's altogether driven out by God. Get it out. And that should encourage the Christian on at least two levels. At a very high level, that means wickedness will not ultimately prevail in the world. It will remain for a little while longer. And it will even get worse as the day of the Lord draws, draws near. We talked about that earlier in Revelation 18, Babylon. But evil's time is growing shorter with every day that passes, and God will eventually banish evil once and for all. So we don't have to be driven to despair when we're surrounded by evil. I didn't bring my worship guide up here, but you, you sang about this earlier God sheddeth your light. And what happens to the darkness? It's gone. It just comes in and banishes the darkness of night. That's at a high level. Then at a much closer level, this also means God can help us overcome evil. I mean, we cannot get sin out of our lives on our own. We can't overcome idolatry on our own. The Bible teaches that we are powerless against sin on our own. We need God. I mean, we, we need new affections for what is holy. We need His power to expel what we cannot expel. We need Him to put evil in its place in our own lives. And here we get a picture of Him doing that for His people. So, how, I mean, how much wickedness do you see in your life? Gosh, I... I just have to wake up in the morning. Why isn't everybody serving me? Why is he so happy in the morning? Why are the dishes still dirty? How come I only get turkey bacon? Why is Andy making us run so far again? <laughs> this red light is taking too long. Why won't he quit complaining? You feel these impulses creeping in. How much idolatry is there in that? Everything would be perfect if you fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. You got your idol. How much sin, and, and then the guilt after you say, how much of it discourages you and drags you down? You see it. I think this text teaches us to take heart. The believer, it teaches the believer to take heart. Because it says that our God can overcome wickedness in us. He already overcame it for us at the cross. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when he cast it out, he said, it is finished. He won the victory over sin in his cross and his resurrection. Now he's just sweeping up the remnants of what he destroyed. His spirit lives in us to make us holy. And he is able to finish the job. The power of sin is snapped. Remaining sin, he's just sweeping it out the door. Let's get this out, because we're, we're going to dwell, dwell with, with God. Philippians tell us, tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. How do we know that he will bring it to completion? Well, because he's more powerful than your wickedness. He's going to get it out. And that ought to encourage you to lay hold of His grace all the more. You can't drive out sin. You don't have the power. But God can, and He's doing it in every person that He saves. So hope in God to deliver you. Trust in Him. Pray for Him to do more in you. 
so that more of his presence can be enjoyed as, as evil continues to go out. Right? We, don't, we don't have to spiral into the self-deception that, that your sin must be more than God can handle. Baloney is what this text tells us. God is able to rid his people of all their wickedness. And how do I know that? Because he's already given us the future. And we see multitudes standing before him, worshiping him without sin forever. Another way the theology of this vision helped me this week. Coming to God means we can't bring our idols with us. We've got to let go of our idols in God's presence. That's it's almost a quotation from, chap- from 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the strange thing about 1 John is in all five chapters, he hasn't said a single thing about idols. And that's the last line of his letter. Hey, keep, keep yourself from idols. All he's talked about is loving others and loving God. Which means... Our lack of love for others and our lack of love for God shows an idol is present somewhere. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Why does the Bible encourage us, encourage us this way? Because idolatry can't live in God's presence. And God wants you to be in His presence. He wants you to enjoy His glory. So He tells you about it in His Word. Keep yourself from idols. And yes, as we just discussed, he lives inside the believer to drive out the wickedness. But his spirit works through our working, not apart from our working. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling For God is at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So yes, God is in here doing the work to expel wickedness, but we still work. He's moving our arms. He's getting our eyes in the book. He's inspiring the prayers, but we're still working and doing. And part of that work involves keeping ourselves from idols, guarding our hearts from every allegiance that competes with our allegiance to Jesus Christ. How do we do that? I'm going to briefly outline five ways to cultivate a heart that forsakes idolatry and and wickedness. This is not a list of things to do. This is not a, um, like, step one, step two, and you're guaranteed. I'm just, I'm giving you five ways to cultivate a heart that forsakes idolatry, to Put yourself under the waterfall of God's blessing okay? and drink deeply. So, number one, study God's glory through the Word, the written Word we have right here. Study God's glory through the Word. In our passage, what happens? Idolatry goes out when God's glory comes in. You can't just determine to get rid of idols if you've never beheld God's glory in Christ. You have to see God rightly before you even know what an idol is. You've got to know what's precious before you know what's dirt, right? At the root of all idolatry, Romans 1 tells us, is the exchanging of the glory of God for something lesser. And there are times when our view of God is so distorted that we end up worshiping a false God. So how is idolatry ever going to leave if you've got a false God or you don't even know God? God has to speak and teach you, and he has done it in the written word. We need the Bible to open our eyes to see God for who he really is, what he's really like. And when that happens, when we see him, the idols become ludicrous and distasteful, and they lose their luster. I mean, what is it in 1 John 
chapter 3, verse 2, what is it that eventually drives all of our sin away? I mean, it's beholding Jesus face to face. I mean, you don't even want to. Who cares? When you see Jesus, who cares about an idol? Right? First John 3, 2, we will be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. But even now, God has revealed himself and he has revealed his glory in the written word. And when we see him there, idolatry becomes repulsive to our hearts. So read and memorize and meditate and study God's glory in scriptures. Uh, number two, enjoy God's presence through prayer. Again, this is the result of something God has already done for us because without Christ and without the Spirit, we wouldn't be in God's presence. He has done this. He's brought us into His presence and prayer is the result. Hey, I'm in God's presence. I've got access to the throne of grace every day. I can pray, right? So you, you've, all these things are bound up with, with what He's done for us. So enjoy His presence through prayer. Um, and, I, and I mention His presence here because, I, I mean, that's, the, that's, that's been the emphasis throughout chapters 1 uh, to 5 in, in Zechariah. I mean, one to, chapters 1 to 4 are all about God's presence in glory, dwelling in His temple city. And chapters 5 and 6 are just the result. Evil's destroyed, evil's banished, and eventually uh, everything's cleaned up at the end. So all these visions are bound up with God's presence somehow. And in today's vision, he keeps his people in his presence while he sends their wickedness away. So if he's given us access to his presence, it makes sense to enjoy his presence now through prayer. And one day we will see him face to face, but now we enjoy him through prayer. Some have even referred to prayer as practicing the presence of God. In church history, this is what they call prayer. It's practicing the presence of God. The more you enjoy God's presence, the less you're drawn away by idols. And even when you're tempted by them, God is present to protect you and, and help you. Remember in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse, uh, what is it, 5, we talked about him being a wall of fire all around his people. He's your protector. Cry out to him for, for help when you're tempted by idols. Number three, use, using the word and prayer, identify and then confess your idols to others. Identify and then confess your idols to others. Now I say this not to encourage some kind of unhealthy introspection, uh, a kind of obsessive self-analysis uh, where you're never looking to Christ. No, for every one look at yourself, take ten, a hundred looks at Christ, okay? Um, so I'm not encouraging some sort of obsessive self-analysis. Rather, I mean, I mean this in the sense of gaining a true self-knowledge in accordance with the Scripture. It's helpful to know who you are, what the Bible says that you are, and, and what the Bible starts to highlight about your, your life. Take the Bible... And identify where your trust really is when you want something too badly. Identify it. Confess it to your brothers and sisters. Identify where your trust really is when you fear something less than God. Identify where your trust really is when you get frustrated when a certain expectation isn't met. Identify where that trust is, there's the idol, and then confess it to others. Bring your idol into the light through confession. I think we need to learn from, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that these things were written down as examples for us who are part of the latter Ages, all these Old Testament examples, and we got a really good one with Achan in Joshua chapter 7, where he steals some of the 
possessions and he hides them in his tent so nobody knows, even though we weren't supposed to take anything from the ban. We have to learn from the sin of Achan in Joshua 7 that keeping your idols hidden is dangerous both for the individual and the community. People in the community, covenant community, died because of his idolatry. And then he and all his family died for their idolatry. We can't keep it hidden. We must bring our idols into the light in order to deal with them rightly. It's only when we walk in the light that we have fellowship with one another, 1 John tells us. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We keep things hidden. Those two things aren't true. We won't have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus will not cleanse us from all sin. We are proving that we do not belong to him. But when we do belong to him and he has forgiven us our, our sins and he has broken the bonds uh, of idolatry, we can confess. We can get him out on the table. This, here it is. I need help. Number four, invite others to help you discern the idols. This is harder. Because oftentimes we, we, uh, we don't grant, we don't give full confession to our idols. I'm only going to tell them this one. These three others I'll keep for a while longer. This one invites people in to say, what are you seeing in me? What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? And God has given us a church family as partners in the grace of sanctification and perseverance. This is why you're not supposed to forsake the assembling of the believers. They are part of our perseverance. They're means of grace. And we need each other. I need you because you see things about me that I cannot see about myself. You see you may see patterns of anger when something doesn't go right. You may see me getting short when I ought to be gentle. You may see patterns in the way I use my words that show I'm not trusting Christ in some way. You may see patterns of anxiety that expose that my contentment must be in something other than God. You may see ways I neglect my family that shows, hey, ministry is climbing up the, the idolatry ladder for this guy. And I need you to say, hey, bro, Christ is better than that. I need you to put my nose in this book and show me the beauty of Jesus. I need this kind of help and discernment and prayer, and so do you. So invite others in and invite them to help you discern the idols. This is a lot of what our care group ministries are about, where you're growing closer in, uh, into each other's lives. So finally, number five, in cultivating a heart that forsakes idolatry, give thanks for the hope you have in Christ. Give thanks for the hope you have in Christ. Thanksgiving. God not only deserves it, but we have so much to be thankful for as he drives sin out of us. Uh, hear this from Colossians 3. Uh, verses 1 to 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's the hope. When he appears, I will appear with him in glory. So based on all of that, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. And he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. I mean, that's past tense there. We can give thanks that it's past tense. 
in these two. You once walked when you were living in them, but now, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Where's the old self? It's in the grave. Jesus took it there. You've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self. Where'd that come from? Jesus' resurrection life. You put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here are those two things again as we close. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And then this, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Your new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's the Holy Spirit getting wickedness out so that you look more and more like Jesus. So give thanks to him as he continues to do this work. When you see idols, you don't have to run to despair or good night, I send it. You look to Christ and you see, yes, and God has given me the grace to identify it. God has given me the grace to re repent from it, to confess it to others. God has given me the grace, so much grace that on the last day, he's going to, I mean, he's so much grace that he's going to keep renewing this image after its creator so that on the last day, I walk into glory and see him face to face. So give thanks also in your fight against idolatry. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer.